שיעור מספר 180, Secret of the Proven Creation and the Mishkan, באולם שמחות, הרב דוד פורמן. אוקיי, מי נאמר דוד פורמן, זה גרוע להיות פה. Thank you so much for being here, and uh, hope we get a chance to get to meet you all and, and talk with you afterwards. Many faces I know in the crowd, many I don't. Please come and introduce yourselves. Uh, okay, it's a great privilege to be here today. Um, I am going to talk quickly uh, because this is a shear which should be about three hours long, which is going to get condensed into about an hour. So hold on to your hats and we'll see what we can do together in a relatively short amount of time. Um, the title for this talk is The Six Days of Creation and the Mishkan. Um, what I mean by that, you'll understand over the course of the first 15 minutes. Let me begin by suggesting that reading the six days of creation is a difficult task. It's a difficult task at all times and it's a particularly difficult task living as we do in the year 2018, um, living in a world with all of its scientific advances in which we are presented with a scientifically striking story of creation which seems to differ radically from the story of the six days of creation as given in the first chapter of Breshid. Um, and I guess what I want to talk with you about today is to some extent how it is that we as modern people um, confront this and deal with it. And that's sort of one question I want to deal with, which is how, as a Jew living in the modern age, in a scientific age, how should we go back and understand and read the first chapter of Breshit, the six days of creation, when Joe on the plane accosts you and says, you're a sophisticated person, you're a religious Jew, are you familiar with the theory of relativity? Are you familiar with anything about the Big Bang, anything like that? And you know, how do you see that squaring with anything in your book, the Bible? What kind of answer should we be prepared to give that person on the plane? What kind of answer should we be prepared to give ourselves? But the second sort of question I want to deal with is not just a question about how we as modern people should read the story of the six days of creation, Perhaps an even more fundamental, more basic, and more fruitful question is how anybody at any time read the story of the six days of creation. Imagine you're living in the dark ages, you're living in the middle ages, you know nothing about the theory of relativity, you know nothing about the Big Bang, you know nothing about anything. All you know is the science that's evident to your eye, and you read the six days of creation. Even then, questions just pop out of you. It doesn't seem to even make sense to a basic person living in the dark ages. And it seems to me that those questions, if we can isolate what they are, are particularly fruitful. One of the distinctions that I think it's helpful to make when you read any text, especially the Tanakh, is distinctions between what I call external questions and internal questions. External questions are questions that come from outside the Tanakh. They're questions that bother you, right? But internal questions are questions that come from the text, questions that the text is, is forcing you to ask. Internal questions are very important questions because they're windows that the author is giving you into understanding the text. They're, those questions are there in the text for you to struggle with, right? If you're reading, say, for Yonah, someone comes and says to you, so how come you survived in the fish for three days? Nobody survives in a fish for three days. How do you answer that question? 
There's no way to answer that question. That's an external question. It's a question that bothers you about the text. It's not a question that bothers the author of the text. The author of the text says it's a miracle. You don't believe in miracles, that's your problem, right? But if somebody comes and says, I don't understand, it says that God said to Yonah to, to go to, to, to Nineveh, and then the next day, next possibly he's running away. Why is he running away? It doesn't say why he's running away. That's a very good question. That comes from the text itself. The questions that are fundamental that, even, that you would ask even in the dark ages, those questions are not the external questions that modern science forces you to ask. They're the internal questions that the text forces you to ask. What are those internal questions? So let me throw that out to you at the risk of, of, of chaos over here. But the question I ask, for you, I ask of you is, what are those questions? If you just scan through the six days of creation, right? what questions jump out at you even if you're living in the 13th century, you're still bothered by this? What's this? Okay, so how was light created before the sun? What was that about? Right, question one. Anything else? <coughs> Let me ask you another. I'll, I'll give you a few. Right, here's one. Okay, when does vegetation get created, basically? Day three. Okay, when does the sun get created, basically? Day four. Do you see the problem here? Right, even if I'm living in the 13th century. I know enough that trees without the sun, you know, not so much. How did those trees make it for a whole day without the sun, right? How exactly do you have trees surviving without the sun? I don't need to know about photosynthesis to know that's a real problem. Another problem. Great. Where did all the water come from? Right? Look at the second pasuk, especially the way Rashi reads the second pasuk. Let's read it the way Rashi reads it. Rashi reads it this way. It's in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Now Rashi reads the vav there as when. So you read it like this. In the beginning of God's creating heaven and earth, when the world was formless and void, when choshech was alpanate to home, when there was darkness upon the face of the deep, when Ruach Elohim Rachefet when the Spirit of God hovered over the waters, then the very first thing that happened, Rashi says, is Vayomer Elohim Yehior. So the very first creation is light. But it's strange because according to Rashi, we don't really get a picture of what we say in Latin as creation ex nihilo. It's not really a picture of creation of something from nothing. There, the Torah starts the story with something, right? What's the something? And it's a very strange view of the something. What's the something? Everything was very chaotic. It was very dark. But something was there. Water. Ruach Elohim rachavet al Where did all the water come from? Generally speaking, everything that happens, God creates with the exception of one thing, water. Water is pre-existent. Where did all that water come from? So that's another question that would bother you. Where did all the water come from? One final question, which I think is a basic question in the story. Let me ask you this. Give me the top 10 reasons why you are happy to live in a solar system with a sun. Why are you happy that there's a sun? Think of the alternatives, no sun, okay? So, giving the top 10 reasons, reason number one why you're happy that there's a sun. Heat. It's not fun living in, you know, minus 234 Kelvin. Do you know that? That's not fun. So the sun provides heat. It also provides light, which is the basis of all life in the world. 
heat and light. These are the great reasons why we like having a sun in the world. There's others, gravity, but basically heat and light. Listen to the Torah's description of why it's so amazing to have the sun. Let there be these heavenly luminaries. You know what they're good for? You humans, I know you guys, you love to have these festivals. You think they're the greatest things in the world. How are you going to have festivals without a calendar? You're never going to know when to have your festivals. You know what a sun is good for? Calendar making. It's amazing. You're going to be able to see when it's light and when it's dark. You're going to count the days. You're going to be able to count the weeks. You're going to be able to count the months. It's amazing. You're going to love it. right? That's why I like the sun. So I have a calendar. That's like number 10 on my list. That's not, what about heat? What about light? So these, I think, are some very basic, profound questions about the text that you don't have to be a great chacham living in 2018 to ask. It just doesn't seem to make sense. So just to review, how's vegetation created before the sun? This strange picture of pre-creation, according to Rashi, what's it all about? Where did all the water come from? And the sun and the moon and the stars, especially the sun as a calendar-making device, seems very strange. How come water was never created? Okay, how are we going to approach answers to these questions? So today I want to approach just as a predicate, as a basic starting point, that in two very important ways, what we're going to try to do is shift our perspective on this story as to try to answer it. And let me explain to you what I mean by shift our perspective on the story. Let's talk about perspective for a moment. There's one sort of simple way of answering any science versus Torah apparent contradiction. And that is by seeking the question of genre. Mortimer Adler wrote a book called How to Read a Book. In this book, he talks about the issue of genre. He says, before you read a book, any book, you have to ask what genre is the book? What kind of book is it? If you're reading a chemistry textbook and you three think you're reading a poetry book, you're going to be in trouble. If vice versa, if you're reading poetry and you think you're reading chemistry, right, it, it's a problem. So for example, if you're reading poetry, right, the fog crept in on his little cat feet, and you raise your hand and say, excuse me, but fog doesn't creep. It's not a cat. It doesn't have feet. I don't understand. The author's crazy, right? That's not a question. You haven't understood the genre, right? You just don't get it. What genre is the Torah? That's a very difficult question to ask, because before you start learning, you have to understand what genre of the book you're looking at. So you could say, well, there's a lot of stories in the Torah. It's a, it's a history book, right? But you know, there's a lot of laws for a history book. What are all those laws doing? They say, oh, no, I'm sorry, it's actually a legal treatise. But there's a lot of stories for a legal treatise. What are all those stories doing there? Yeah, you're right. You know, maybe it's a philosophy book because there's some philosophy in there. But there sure are a lot of story, laws and stories for a philosophy book. So what, what genre really is it? Just like, where, where would you put it in the library? So I want to suggest that possibly the genre is what the name Torah suggests, a guidebook. It's there to guide you. It's there to guide a person and a nation in building a relationship with God and a relationship with those around them. It's a guidebook. That means that everything in the book is going to be filtered through the lens of guidebook, right? I'm trying to be madrich human beings. So everything I tell them, I'm going to tell them from that perspective. So for example, when Chazal say, Ein you can't count on chronology in the Torah. 
That wouldn't make sense for a history book, but it could make sense for a guidebook, right? If I can teach you more by twisting around events and putting two things together because the themes are similar and I want you to see a pattern in what's happening over an age and I twist the chronology, that could make sense to guide you. Where are the dinosaurs? Well, if the dinosaurs aren't being madrichu, so I don't feel a need to talk about them, there are certain things you need to understand in creation to guide you, and therefore the Torah will talk about creation, but it will talk about it from the perspective of guidance, not really from the perspective of science. So therefore, science will tell one story, and the story of creation will look different in the Torah. This is the beginning of an approach to dealing with the issues of science and Torah and how they relate to each other. But I think if I was a skeptical Joe on the plane, I still might have a question back to you if you suggested this, this approach to me. And the question I would have back to you is, okay, I get it. The Torah is a guidebook. But if it's going to talk about creation, and creation actually happened, it was an event in time, right? So there has to be some way in which the Torah is relating to events as they actually happened. You, have to, you can tell me, okay, the Torah is telling it to me differently. It's a guidebook, but, but show me the point of departure. Show me how what the Torah is talking about at all corresponds in some way to the scientific story. How, how do these two things even relate to each other, your guidebook perspective and your scientific perspective? And I think that's a, legit, a, a legitimate question. So I want to propose today an approach towards that question. The approach is this. If the Torah is a guidebook, then one of the things that follows from that is that the Torah is going to place human beings, us, at sort of the center of things. It's talking to us. One of the differences between science and a guidebook is that science doesn't consider humanity as the center. It's just objective. It's just show me what's there. There's this huge universe and you guys are just a, a few living beings on the third rock from a sun and a pretty ordinary galaxy among 100 billion galaxies. That's science's story. From the Torah's perspective, we really are the center of things. What that means is that the Torah will use an exaggerated, to put this in fancy words, the Torah will create an exaggerated anthropocentric perspective. We will be at the center, more than science will, will, will allow for. The first perspective switch I'd like to suggest is, if you look at the Torah, and you can switch perspectives, if you can somehow say, okay, that's the Torah talking to human beings, trying to guide them. But if I could factor out the human element as it were, from the Torah stories. Maybe I could arrive at science's story. If I could somehow factor out that element, to give you a muscle. Imagine you were in the Metropolitan Museum of Art and you were looking at a beautiful painting by Renoir. And it was this French you know, scene, there's a garden, very beautiful. And you're a computer programmer and you say, well, that's a very nice scene. But I wonder what that exact scene would look like if I was standing over there near the bridge. I don't like that perspective. I want to see that same scene from a different perspective. You can imagine writing a computer program that to feed in that data, which is the data from that Renoir picture, and then to switch perspectives so you could see the exact same view of what it would look like over there from the bridge. You could imagine a computer program that would do that. 
Could you imagine doing the same thing with the Torah? Could you say, okay, here's your guidebook perspective. This is the way humans would see it. Let me factor out the guidance. Would I arrive at something that approaches science? So that's one perspective switch I want to try with you today. Here's the second perspective switch. If you're here at the Yimei you know that one of the tools that people like myself and others here will use is intertextuality, connections between texts, language patterns in certain texts that seem to resonate with other texts, almost as if a Torah story A is commented upon by another story that's parallel to it, a story B. These intertexts, these commentaries are very helpful. It's almost like the Torah is the original commentary upon itself. Even before Rashi, even before the Ramban, even before the Sforno, there was the Torah sort of commenting on itself through these parallel texts. When the Torah creates these parallel texts, it's almost like saying story B maps onto story A, and story B will explain, help explain story A to you. The question is, is there one of these texts for creation? Where would we find it? So I want to suggest one of these texts. I'm going to try to do it as quickly as I can. I want to suggest that the text might just be the construction of the Mishkan. Here's why. There's a strange halacha that really is kind of strange. All of our Shmirat Shabbat depends upon this halacha. The fact that all of the 39 malachot derive from where? Malachat HaMishkan. Why is that? So if you're a Talmud scholar, you know why that is. You know because in Parshat Vayakel, there's a smichut parshiot between these two things, the Gemara Darshans, the connections between Shabbos and between Malachat HaMishkan. Very nice. But if I'm Joe on the plane and I ask you, okay, but that doesn't make any sense. Okay, why should it be that way? Why should it be that the template of all things for the malacha that we avoid on Shabbat has to do with this thing that has nothing to do with it, which is how human beings once constructed the Mishkan? What in the world does that have to do with keeping Shabbat? Conceptually, there's got to be some link. In other words, the whole basis of your spiritual avoda in Shabbos, you know, seven days a week, seven, every seventh day, relies on this truth, that the Mishkan is the template for, for Malacha. Why should it be that way? Let me suggest a possible rationale. Think about creation and think about the Mishkan. What did God do in creation? We think of creation as something from nothing. First there was nothing and then there was something. That's our perspective. Think about it from God's perspective for a moment. What would God think if you said, first there was nothing, and then God created something, and then there was something? What would God think of that? He'd be kind of offended, right? Because first there was him, right? So first he would say, no, no, you got actually entirely wrong. God would say, first there was everything, okay? There was just me, and I was living in my world, and I was doing just fine. It was amazing, right? Then you guys came along, and here's how you guys came along. I had to actually, and this is the Kabbalistic doctrine of Tzimtzum, I had to like contract myself somehow to make room for you guys. I had to actually create this little artificial apartment in everything called the universe, okay? 
and I had to create all these nifty things like space and time and laws of physics and everything. Not because I needed any of that, guys, for you guys, okay? Because I don't need space, I don't need time, I don't need gravity, I don't need any of those laws. If you really think about it, God keeping all the laws of physics, really God is the first keeper of laws. We're the second keeper of laws. God keeps human laws. We keep divine laws, right? He keeps all those laws. He doesn't need any of those laws. We need the laws. We like living in a world with gravity and with, with the laws of chemistry and physics. So God creates this little apartment, and then he creates this human being in his image, a creator just like him. What would it mean for the creator to create the most amazing thing in the world? To reciprocate, to do exactly for God what he did for us. What we do as creators is we take our everything, what we perceive as everything, which is our universe, and we create this little apartment for the being that we love. And we say, okay, we're going to create a little apartment for you, God, that's going to work according to your rules. And in that apartment, we're going to observe all these rules that have nothing to do with human beings that are really godly rules, rules like Kodesh, and rules of Tuma and Tara, we don't know what that is. You know what that is, it makes you comfortable. We're gonna try to make you comfortable in our world. We're gonna make you an apartment just like you made us an apartment. That's what God says to do. And at the very end of that, God says, oh great human beings, here's what I want you to do. You're builders just like me. When I built, I rested. You should rest too after you build. You should rest just like me. How did I rest? Well, after I built, what did I do? I rested from all the malacha that I did in creating the apartment, my apartment for you. So when you rest, you too should rest from all the malacha that you do to create the apartment, the apartment that you're creating for me. Rest from malacha tamishkan. You with me? It kind of makes sense, right? Now, if that's the rationale behind why it is that Malachat Shabbat derives from Malachat Mishkan, you begin to see how the construction of the Mishkan might just be parallel to the construction of the universe. They're both construction of an apartment, right? One's God constructing our apartment, and the other is us constructing God's apartment. Might those two texts be connected to each other? I think they are, and what I want to suggest to you today is that the questions we have just asked about creation can be answered by the story of the creation of the Mishkan. Similarly, there are store questions that you might have looking at the creation of the Mishkan. And you know where you might find answers for that? In the story of creation. These two texts will answer each other will complete each other, as it were. So what I want to do with you now is stop for a moment and go back to the Mishkan and now ask a few questions about the Mishkan, just sort of basic questions about the Mishkan and how Chazal understand it, and, and see if creation might help us understand those questions. Here's some strange things about the Mishkan. In a bunch of weird places in the Mishkan, you have an ornamental, an ornamental device known as the Kruvim. 
The Kruvim are very important. In a way, you can title this talk The Secret of the Kruvim. Where do the Kruvim show up in the Mishkan? In the ark. So everyone knows they're on the ark, right? The three-dimensional Kruvim are on the ark. But that's not the only place that they are. They're actually in two other places as well. If you look carefully at the text in Truma, you'll find that images of the Kruvim are actually woven into the parochet, which is the curtain that divides the Kodesh from the Kodesh Kodashim, and they're also woven into the Uriot, to the curtains that cover the Mishkan. So the first question I have to you is, what's the meaning of that? Why are there Kruvim in the Mishkan? And why, of all places, should they be there specifically? How come they're not in the menorah? How come they're not in the shulchan? How come the kruvim show up specifically here? There is, by the way, some interesting and tantalizing common denominators between these places. Just look at their orientation. The parochet, the kaporet, and the uriot. What orientation does the kaporet, the covering for the ark, have? It lays on the ark horizontally. Now think about the parochet, the curtain. What's its orientation? Vertical. Now think about the uriot. What's their orientation? Vertical and horizontal as they cover the mishkan. Kind of interesting. What are these things? The, what's the real common denominator between these three things? And why are there kruvim there? Question number one. Question number two. We all know it's a terrible thing to wear shatnas, but it's all over the Mishkan. That doesn't seem like it makes any sense. The Mishkan's supposed to be this really holy place, and there's shatnas all over the place. It's woven into the Uriot, it's woven into the Parochet, it's woven into the Big Dekuna. How come there's shatnas all over the place? Question number three. Something Chazal tell us about the Aron. The Aron is like Harry Potter land, right? And you look at the Aron, and Chazal say, there's a problem because if you do the math with the dimensions, it doesn't add up, right? What's the problem? So there's 10 Amad over here, there's 10 Amad over here, and the Aron itself is 10 Amad, but there's only 20 Amad. Not enough room for the Aron. What's Chazal's answer? The Aron doesn't take up any space. Oh, really? The Aron doesn't take up any space. That's pretty weird. What's the deal with an Aron that doesn't take up? I mean, it literally sounds like Harry Potter. There's a tent like that in Harry Potter. From the outside, it looks like this. From the inside, it looks like this. That, that's the Aron. From the outside, it looks like it takes up space. When you get there, it doesn't really take up space. That's a really strange thing. Here's another really strange thing. What's in the Aron? Luchod. What do Chazal say is on the Luchod? So the text that's written on, Chazal, on the Luchod, according to the Medrash, is written in black fire or white fire inscribed, sorry, black fire inscribed on white fire. That's a very psychedelic image. I mean, that just looks like a swirl. Like what exactly is that, black fire and white fire? One other thing that's kind of strange, the Big Day Kahuna. So generally seeing the Big Day Kahuna are the Big Day Kahuna, except for Yom Kippur, when the Kohen Gadol goes he wears special clothes. What color are they? White. Okay, why are they white? So Chazal tell us, well, they can't be gold because ain kategor nasesanegor, that would remind us of the golden calf. But that doesn't explain why they're white. It just explains why they're not gold. Why are they white, of all things? Why are the big day kuna white? I mean, just some things to wonder about when you're thinking about the Mishkan. Finally, one last thing that's a little bit strange, if we get a chance, we'll talk about it, is Parshat Emor. Generally speaking, the laws of the Mishkan are more or less confined to Truman and Tetzava, 
But in Parshat Emor, there's a cameo. Right after the Parshat Hamoedim, and you'll find it at the second thing in your sheets, right? Right after the Parshat Hamoedim, you're going to find, all of a sudden, out of nowhere, two clay HaMishkan are going to be described, the menorah and the shulchan. Very odd. When the menorah and shulchan are described, if you look at actually the text, you'll find that there's a word that's going to appear over and over with regard to their descriptions. A word that's kind of interesting, given the fact that until now, we've been talking about Parshat HaMoedim. What does Moed mean? A point in time, an appointment in time. What would you say is the opposite of a point in time? The opposite of a point in time would be no point in time, which means all day, all night, everything. And isn't that interesting? that that's exactly what we hear about these two kalim of the Mishkan over and over again. The word is tamid. The menorah is there, lahalot ner tamid, right? Three times we're going to hear lifnei Hashem tamid, chukat olam, lifnei Hashem tamid with the menorah, the shulchan. We're going to hear that the bread was there tamid. What's this business of tamid as opposed to moed? And why are these... Um, Kalim of the Mishkan lifted out of Truman Tetzava and described here at the end of Parshat Amoedim. What are we to make of that? Okay, so here's the theory that I want to suggest to you. The keystone clue to putting this all together, I want to suggest, are the Kruvim themselves. Why Kruvim in the Mishkan? And why those three places? Let's talk about Kruvim. We know the Kruvim appears somewhere else besides the Mishkan. Where else besides the Mishkan? Way back in Gan Eden, way back in our creation story. Okay, so what were Kruvim doing back there in Gan Eden? They were barrier angels, right? They were there to keep us out of Gan Eden, to make sure that we couldn't come back. Strange, but what are these Kruvim in the Mishkan doing? Those Kruvim had a sword. These Kruvim don't have a sword. They seem to be doing something else. Porse knafayim. They are actually, they have their wings open as if they're sheltering us beneath their wings. Whereas those Kruvim back in Gan Eden say, stay out. These Kruvim seem to say, come on in. If you think back to our analogy between creation and um, and the Mishkan, right? Creation was God building an apartment for us. The Mishkan is God, us building an apartment for God. But when God built an apartment for us, God also wanted a little tiny apartment in that apartment, a little summer home. And that place was Gan Eden. When we got kicked out of there, God said, you can't have access to that little summer home, my special place in the world anymore, because that's my special place that I built. But if you ever want to build me one, I'll be happy to lend you my Kruvim. The same Kruvim that kept you out of the first special place for God will usher you back in to the apartment that you build for him. So here are these barrier angels, and where are they put, these barrier angels in the Mishkan? Think about the common denominator of the three places in the Mishkan that you find the Kruvim. Where do you find them? You find them on the Yeriot, you find them on the, on the Kaporet, 
and you find them on the parochet. What's the common denominator of all three of those places? They are boundary enforcers. They are actually separators, right? Separators between levels of Kedusha, really, right? If you think about it, the most sacred place in the Mishkan is the Aron. That which separates the Aron from the world outside the Aron is the Kaporet. Then the Parochet separates what? Separates the Kodesh from the Kodesh of Kodeshim. That's even the language of the te text. Lahavdil bein HaKodesh or bein HaKodesh HaKodeshim. The Uriot separate between the world of the Mishkan and the outside world. So here come these barrier angels at three strategic points in the Mishkan. And what the barrier angels is do, they do is do the mirror image of what they do in Gan Eden. Instead of holding up a stop sign, these barrier angels kind of usher you in and say, you can come closer, you can come closer. Right? If you're ready, if you're prepared, you can come closer. Three points of separation in the Mishkan. Three Havdalot in the Mishkan. Think back to the idea of connection between the Mishkan and creation. There's three Havdalot in the Mishkan. Does that word remind you of anything in creation? Vayavdel Elohim, Vayavdel Elohim, and God separated, and God separated. How many times did God separate with that word lahavdil in creation? Guess what? Three times. What are the three? First, light and darkness. Second, water and water. Right? God creates the rakia betochamayim, the sky between the waters, lahavdil benamayim me'al rakia, ubenamayim mitachal rakia, to separate between water up high and water below. And the third? The third is on day four. It's the creation of the sun and the moon and the stars, lahavdil benayom ben laila, to separate between day and night, and to separate between, to allow for months, days, and years, so that we could have moedim. Fascinating. Three separations in the Mishkan, three separations in creation. Here's the question I want to suggest to you. Could there be a correspondence between these three? Could the three separations in the Mishkan correspond to the three separations in creation? If they are, what would that tell us? So let's think for a moment about this concept of separation within creation. What's the function of separation within creation? If you think about what God was doing in creation, the verbs that God uses to create, what are some of the verbs? What does God do when he creates the world? One word, verb is bara. Another verb is? Vayas, asa. Another word is? Yatsar, right? God forms, he creates, he makes. But the other verb is lahavdil, God separates. Which one of these things is not like the other? Separates. See, when I make something, I create something, or I form something, right? What's the common denominator in that? I'm building stuff. When I separate, I'm not building anything. I'm just, just moving things around, right? I'm not building anything new. 
So why does God do it then? If he's creating, why bother separating? Why not just create? Answer is, well, if you're a creator, you can't really create unless you prepare the ground, unless you there's a certain kind of infrastructure from what you're doing. Okay, now keep that idea in mind for a moment and think about this. If the Mishkan, going back to the Mishkan for a moment, is an attempt to create an apartment for God in our world, if you think about that, that's a little bit of a strange thing to do. You see, if God makes an apartment for us in his world, God knows how to do that, right? We're carbon-based life forms. God understands what it takes for a carbon-based life form to survive. Need some oxygen, need some gravity, need some laws of physics. God creates it just for us. So God says, okay, now you do that for me. You create a special place for me. What's the problem? No idea. We have no idea what that means. We don't know what are we. We know where you live. We know what you're going to like. How do we know what you're going to like? What does it take for God to be happy? We have no idea. How am I supposed to make a place for you? So how do you even do it? So let me suggest an analogy. How would you make a place for someone you hardly even know? So imagine that this happened in real life, not with God. Imagine that your great aunt Sadie was coming to visit you from Australia. You'd never met her. Your mom told you about her. But Sadie, you know, she's kind of has her eccentricities. She likes things a certain way. But you have no idea what she likes. Anyway, so she's going to be coming, staying in your house for a month. So your kid is off to camp, and you have a spare room. But it's your kid Bobby, and he's like eight years old, right? So you want to get Bobby's room ready for Aunt Sadie. Problem is you don't know what Aunt Sadie likes in, in her room, right? What would you do to get Bobby's room ready for Aunt Sadie? Think about what Bobby's room looks like now. <laughs> it's got footballs all over the place. It's got, right, it, it's got Snoopy characters, stuffed animals, right, all these. So you would say, look, I don't know what Aunt Sadie likes, but I know what she doesn't like, okay? She doesn't need footballs all over her room, okay? She doesn't need sports paraphernalia. She doesn't need all the stuff that eight-year-old boys like. She'd probably like at least a nice clean room, right? If I don't know what she likes, let me just give her a clean room. Everything that she doesn't need, let me take it out. Let's use the same logic for creating the Mishkan. Could it be that to create a special place for God, if we don't know what God likes, we at least know what he doesn't like. What doesn't he need? What doesn't God need in, right, if we're taking our world, right, the universe, and we're saying we're going to clean up the room for God, let's take all the stuff out that God doesn't need. What doesn't God need? The answer is everything. Do you understand? And by everything, I don't just mean all the stuff. I mean everything, like the laws of physics, like time, like space, everything in creation, right? you got to like vacuum that out. to make. So it, what you're really doing when you're creating the Mishkan is you're deconstructing the universe. You see, it's a weird psychedelic thing. There is a relationship between constructing the Mishkan and constructing the universe, but you know what the relationship is? They're opposites. It's a mirror image, which is to say, in creating the Mishkan, even though nominally we're involved in an act of malacha, an act of building, what we're really doing on a deeper level is destroying. 
We're actually deconstructing. It's a demolition project where you're, we are demolishing the world as we know it to try to create a clean room for God, right? Devoid of anything possible in creation. How would you do that? So again, take an analogy from demolition. Do we have anybody in construction around here? Anybody ever demolished a building? No? So if you demolish a building, you have a big skyscraper. You want to get rid of the skyscraper? You have three charges. You have three explosive charges. Where are you going to put the charges to demolish your skyscraper? You don't want to make a mess. You just want to do this as quickly as possible. You want it to come down very elegantly. Where do you put the charges? In any construction project, there is infrastructure and there's superstructure. In, right? There's the lamps and the shades and the window dressing and the, right, all, there's all the stuff that you put in a building, but then they're the fundamental underpinnings of the building, the superstructure of the building. That's where you put the charges. That's where you put the explosives. If you put the explosives at the right place, right, in the infrastructure, everything just collapses. I want to suggest that in the great building project called creation, there's also superstructure and infrastructure. The superstructure is all the stuff that God put in the world. For that, there's the language of creation. Vayas this, vayivra that, vayitzer that. God formed this, he created this, he made this. That's all the stuff God put in creation. But what's the fundamental underpinnings of creation? Lahavdil, the separations. The separations, God's not making anything. Just God, God is just creating the infrastructure which will be necessary to support that which he then makes. Got to put the water over here. Got to put the land over there. Got to create sky. Got to do that. So I want to suggest that the three Havdalot are actually the three infrastructure points in creation. And they correspond perfectly to the three infrastructure points in the Mishkan. So in our time left, which I'm trying to figure out how much we have, uh, who knows? Um, ah, there we go. Okay. So what I want to do is flesh this out for you. Let's let's figure this out. So now let's read through the creation story, paying attention specifically to the three great Havdalot, and then we'll see how they correspond to the Mishkan, and we can use the Mishkan to check our math. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Now let's get to the stra that strange second pasuk, the pasuk that talks about chaos. It doesn't just talk about chaos. If you look carefully, it talks about three kinds of chaos. If you think about a builder, for a builder, what's chaos? Chaos is your enemy. To build, I need a nice orderly surface. If you think about this chaos, there's actually three kinds of enemies here for building. Listen to it carefully. The first level of chaos is everything is all mixed up. The second level of chaos is it's really dark. If it's dark, you can't see anything. So everything looks all mixed up, no matter what everything actually is. So you can't see anything. And the third level of chaos is what's there? Just water. What kind of thing is water? What does water do? It mixes everything up. If you're a builder, you're building a house, what's your great enemy? Water. 
right? You never want water in your basement. You never want water anywhere. Water, right, mixes everything up. Put it all together, by the way, what does it look like? If you just imagine what the scene looks like, it's dark, it's chaotic, water all over the place. Where else in the Torah have we heard such a scene? The flood. It's almost like the flood was going back to that tohu vavohu. But somehow, strangely enough, this world which we're hearing now, this is God's world. It is. This is the starting point. See, God doesn't look at those things as enemies. For God, that's just the way he likes it, right? Everything is all mixed up. Everything is homogenous. The one God looks at a world in which there are no distinctions, which everything is just one in all of these three ways. When it's dark outside, everything looks the same. When it's water everywhere, everything is homogenous. When it's, everything is all mixed up, everything is the same. The one God lives in an environment of oneness and sameness in some way. But if you're building a world, it's your enemy, and you need Havdalot to get things straight. What I want to suggest is that the three Havdalot that you're going to see developing correspond to these three problems that we hear in verse 2. Each Havdalah will solve one of the three chaos problems. One's going to solve the Tovo problem, one's going to solve the Choshek problem, and one is going to solve the Mayim problem. Right? Let's begin. First thing that happens is God says, Yehi or by Yehi or. Now, God looked at that or and saw that it was good. Now, stop for a moment, and, and I just want you to imagine the scene. So imagine for a moment that here is the world. It's very chaotic. It's very dark. And there's water all over the place, right? So just picture the scene. If it's very chaotic and very dark, water all over the place, it looks like a flood. So there's like crashing waves, right? Very dark outside. Lots of wind, right? Ruach halakim, rachev All of a sudden, vayihi or. Let there be light and there was light. Now describe the scene. What does it look like? So there's this huge light. It's like this overexposed photograph, right? And now you could see the chaos, right? You could see there's water everywhere. It's all chaotic. But at least it's light, right? Very, very bright, which creates a problem. The very next verse is a problem. Look at the next verse. Vayar lokim or kitov, vayavdel elokim ben haor uben ha'choshech. And God separated between the light and the darkness. What's the problem? Where's the darkness? You just turned on the lights. If you turned on the lights, vayhi or, it's light. You got rid of the darkness. That was the whole point of the light, right? So what do you mean you separate between the light and the Where did the darkness come from? You, the darkness is the absence of light. Once you turn on the light, there's no more darkness. Why do you have to separate between light and darkness? There's no darkness. I think it's the Sporno, but I may be wrong. One of the Rishonim deals with the question and provides a fascinating answer. The answer is the only logical answer. It says there's two kinds of darkness. The darkness, conventional darkness as we understand it, is the absence of light. If that's the kind of darkness you're talking about, if the initial darkness was the darkness of the absence of light, then yes, by turning on the light, you banish that darkness. But it must be that there's another kind of darkness conceptually that you can imagine. One that is not the absence of something, not the absence of light, but the presence of darkness. Kind of like later on in the Torah, vayamesh choshech vayihi laila, right? And also in the, in the, pl the plague of choshesh. Sort of like a tangible darkness. 
And this Rishon suggests that that was the kind of darkness here. In other words, the original light that was created actually was a composite of two elements. It was a composite of light and darkness. There was this, this light force, right, that was this, this thing called light, but then there was this thing called darkness, this actual tangible darkness that was mixed into the light. Now, it didn't look like darkness because when it was mixed into the light, it had sort of like a preservative function. What it did was it, it, it kept the light together somehow. But what happened is that once you separated the two, you could see the darkness for what it was, and the darkness was darkness, and that was the creation of light as we know it, what we might call refined light, light which has darkness refined and separated out of it. Now, that seems kind of psychedelic. But if you turn to science, it actually sort of sounds like it corresponds to something. You may be aware that scientists have been struggling with a problem lately. And the problem is there's not enough stuff in the universe. If you actually do the math, the gravitational math, it turns out that if you add up all the stuff in the universe, all the matter and energy in the universe, all the hundreds of billions of stars and the hundreds of billions of galaxies, it only accounts for about 18% of the stuff that's out there. How do we know what's out there? Because we see the force of gravity. And what gravity is, is the attractive force of everything that's out there in the world. And gravity is at a certain strength, which only makes sense if there's five times as much stuff out there as there is if you add up all the stuff. So where's the missing stuff? So scientists have taken to calling the missing stuff dark energy or dark matter or dark matter and energy. They say actually most of the stuff out there is dark matter and energy. Why do they call it dark matter and energy? Because it doesn't interact with light. It's impossible to see. It, light is irrelevant to it. Light passes through it. You can't illuminate it with light. You can't reflect off of it. Light is just irrelevant to this thing. So in the very beginning of the Big Bang, Right? The Big Bang starts where all everything in the universe is all together, and then it explodes. And in the first instance of that explosion, something happens where light energy, so to speak, and light matter starts to break away from dark matter. Dark matter sticks around. It's very important. You don't have a universe without it, not enough gravity without it to be able to hold things together. But then there's this thing called light as we know it, which is refined light, light that is broken away from darkness, from dark matter and dark energy. And out of that light, right, that begins to be the stuff of all matter and energy that comes into the universe. Don't know, but as a possibility, maybe that first Havdalah, which talks about the creation as light as we know it, right, is the first great infrastructure development in the world, right, light as we know it. Now, if you go, by the way, to the theory of relativity, it will sort of make sense to you why light is considered the first great infrastructure development in the world, right? Because what does light make possible? If you actually think about it, light makes possible everything. By everything, let's get back, I'll get back to what I mean by that. Let's look at the second Havdalah. You'll begin to see how light makes that possible. Let's look at Havdalah number two. By the way, then what happens next? The next thing that happens next is God says, with reference to this, Here's the thing. What we're doing now, this reading of creation, 
is not the pshat in Chumash. What I mean to say is go back to our guidebook analogy. In pshat, in guidebook land, right, in, 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 in human land, the Torah is telling you a story to guide you. Whatever that guidance is, is not our purview right here. What we're doing almost is factoring out the human view. So in other words, God talking to humans then says, okay, like how are you going to explain this to anyone? You know what I mean? Like if you, you're not living in the year of 2018 or whatever, you don't know any of this stuff. So how do you explain this? So God basically says, look, let's just call it night and day. You know what night is? You know what day is? Fine. So think of it that way. That's what I created on the very first day, night and day. Okay. What's the next great Havdalah in the uh, in the universe. The next great Havdalah is water. Let there be sky in the midst of the waters. Okay, let me ask you something. Why are you so happy for that Havdalah? Like, think about what it would be like to live in the world if there was never sky in the midst of the waters. So all there is, is what? Water. Okay, so now why am I really happy for that Havdalah? sky in the midst of the waters, and then there's upper waters that are clouds, and there's lower waters that are seas. But if it weren't for that, why would you be really sort of upset? You don't have anywhere to live, right? There's no space for you to live, no habitable human space. I'm not a fish, right? I can't just live in that world. So what now? So I have no habitable human space. Now, if you think about it, in these Havdalah, God is speaking to you as a human being. But if you factor out the human element, what do you get? If you factor out, you know what day is, you know what night is, you get perhaps primal night and primal day, right? Light energy and dark energy. What if you factor out the human element from this Havdalah? What did God do? God took a world of water, right? And he created habitable human space. Right? Look, there's this space that you can move around in. There's this sky. There's this air. Don't you like it? You can move around in that. So if that's the way God talks to human beings, he created a habitable human space, and you want to factor out the human part of it, what did God really create with this Havdalah? Not habitable human space, but space itself. I want to suggest the second great infrastructure development is the creation of space. Now, and right, it, it's actual space for us to live. You can't imagine what it's like to live without space, but if you actually go into science, that was it. God didn't just create the universe, the stuff in space and time. He creates space and time themselves. What's the third great infrastructure development? God says, okay, so I'm going to make the sun and the moon and the stars. It's going to be amazing. It's going to help you keep time. It's going to be so that you humans can understand the calendar. You're going to be able to mark up your calendar. It's going to be the most amazing thing in the world. A Havdalah that allows humans to mark time. That's how God talks to humans about it. But if you factor out the human element, what did God actually create? He didn't create a calendar. He created time itself, right? We're talking about three great infrastructure events, the creation of light as we know it, the creation of space as we know it, and the creation of time as we know it, all of which happen in the first fractions of a second after the Big Bang almost simultaneously. What I want to suggest is that the Torah is not giving you a chronological perspective on creation. It is giving you a conceptual perspective on creation. Conceptually, the most basic thing that God created, the very first infrastructure piece that everything else depends upon, is light. 
Why? Theory of relativity. What is everything based upon? Space and time itself. You can't measure space and time in the theory of relativity because why? It's all relative. Relative to what? You can't know how big a space is unless you know, unless you know if you, how fast you're going relative to the speed of light, right? The faster you go, the more space contracts the closer you get to the speed of light. You get to the speed of light, space actually contracts into nothing. So space and time themselves are dependent upon light. After you have light, you can have, right? Then you can create something else. You can create space. After you create space, what does God create after day two? He creates all this stuff to fill space with. But then on day four, God creates time, so to speak. And all of a sudden, new things get created. What new things? What gets created after time? Certain kinds of life. Until now, what things were created? Trees, vegetations. Those things don't move. They can exist in a world of space alone, conceptually. But then new things get created. What are the new things? Animate life. Life that moves. Listen to the language. Yishritzu hamayim sheretz nefesh chaya. Of Right? Moving life. Movement requires what? Time. What is time? But time allows you to actually go through life in movement. Go through space and move in time. So these are the three great infrastructure developments that get mirrored in the Mishkan. I only have moments left with you, so let's take a quick three-dimensional tour of the Mishkan, starting from the outside. So here I am, I'm starting from the outside, and I go through the Uriot, and now I'm in the Mishkan, I'm in the Kodesh, and I'm looking up, and all of a sudden, what happens? I look up, and what don't I see anymore? The sun and the moon and the stars, because something's blocking it. These curtains with the Kruvim is blocking in it. Where am I living now? What have I just gotten rid of in this deconstruction project? The last of the Havdalot. I just got rid of time. I'm in a world now with no time, which explains something interesting, by the way, because when you look at the Shulchan, there's something funny about that bread, isn't there? Stays fresh all week long. Wonder why that might be. No time. That's a good explanation. If you're in a world with no time, the bread just stays fresh. But how does this world with no time work? How is it that time evaporates in this world? Oh, so go to Parshat Emor. Moed is all about points in time. How am I going to get rid of points in time? Through Tamid, through things that happen all the time. So there's going to be two things that are all the time things. The first of them is going to be a menorah where... What do we do? We take our, we refine God's products, olives, and we make olive oil out of them. And when we use our malacha to make olive oil and we light it, what does that create? Artificial light all night long. So what are we getting rid of? Getting rid of the havdalah between night and day because it's all light all the time. And if you think about it, there's three kinds of time we can get rid of that way. There's four markers of time that we have in the world. What are the four markers of time? Days, weeks, months, years. Three out of those four are dependent upon light and dark cycles. Which three? Days, months, 
years. Those are light dark cycles, right? Light dark cycle, the, right? The, that's what, not weeks, right? You can get rid of three out of the four elements of time with artificial light that get rid of the distinction between night and day. That's the menorah. By the way, how many times does the word tamid appear with the menorah? Three times. Getting rid of three kinds of ways that we count time. Days, night, days, years, months. But there's one that remains. Weeks. Weeks is associated with who? The shulchan, the other implement that's talked about at the end of Emor, the other tamid thing that gets rid of just one thing with the tamid, the weak thing, because a week doesn't come from the distinction between night and day. What does it come from? It comes simply from God creating on seven days, six days, and resting on seven. It comes through God's malacha. When God made things, he made all these things. He made agriculture. He made all the stuff in the world. And what do we do? We make bread. And we make bread. Our malacha covers over God's malacha. We get rid of God's malacha. You look at bread, you can't see the wheat, can't see the water, can't see anything God did. You can only see the things that man did. What is man doing with the shulchan and the menorah? He is using his malacha to create bread and to create artificial light to get rid of, so to speak, or cover over God's malacha. And with that, we get rid of the four elements of time through four elements of tamid. And then there you are in the Kodesh and you're looking at the parochet and you see the kruvim and you go through the parochet and all of a sudden you're in a whole new world. You're deconstructing another phase. What have you gotten rid of now? The next Havdalah, what have you gotten rid of? Space, which explains something funny about that Aaron, doesn't it? You look at that Aaron and you'll be darned if it doesn't take up any space, right? It looks like it takes up space from the outside, but when you're there, it just doesn't seem to take up any space anymore. What a strange thing, an Aaron that doesn't take up any space because you've lost space in this world. What's the only thing you have? Light. You're in the world of light. So if you're in the world of light, how are you going to survive in that world? You don't survive, which is why anybody who goes into that world, what happens to them? They die. You know why they die? Not because God is mean. They die because you're not in man's world anymore. You're in the world beyond space and the world beyond time. So you can't live. The only body who can live is the Kohen Gadol if he's wearing the right clothes. What are the right clothes? Clothes that are made out of Light, white clothes. You got to put on your spacesuit. You got to wear white. You got to wear light. And in the world of light, if you wear light, then maybe you can live in this kind of spacesuit and you can live in that world. In the world of light, by the way, there is no space and time. And if you consult physics, that's true for photons. It's actually true for light because light travels at the speed of light. And when you're traveling at the speed of light, what happens to space? It collapses to an infinite point. And what happens to time? It collapses too. So Photons can go for millions of years, but they don't age because there is no time for a photon and there is no space for a photon. So in the world of light, there is no time and there is no space. And then you look at the one thing that's there, this Aron that doesn't take up any space, and you see the three-dimensional Kruvim. The Kruvim are not in two dimensions anymore. They're real in front of you in three dimensions, and they're beckoning you towards one last separation between the world of the Ark and what's not on the ark, and you go through that world into the ark, and what do you see? All of a sudden, everything is gone. The last great separation was what? The separation between 
light and darkness, between dark energy and, and, and light energy, between actual darkness and between darkness that you can touch and that you can feel, the energy of darkness and the energy of light, and you look at the luchot and what do you see? You see the swirl. You see light energy and dark energy. And this is when humans say to God, Aunt Sadie, we've taken out all the stuff from Bobby's room, all the stuff that you didn't need. We got rid of it all. We got all the infrastructures, elements out of the room. We recreated your world, the world of Tohu Vavohu, the world of Choshech al Tahom, Beruach HaLakim Rachefet Alamayim, the world before any distinctions, the world that's one for a one God. Thank you very much.